0: election, the Liberal Party is not only the only party that can stop the Conservatives but we're also the only party with a real plan to get things done. So I will ask progressives across the country who may be thinking about voting for the NDP or Green Party to think about the top issue that they are concerned with for the future. Mr. Trudeau's track record is clear. It has been a failure on the environment. He's had six years. No one believes that he's gonna do anything differently moving forward. How can you? For six years, he has been a failure in fighting the climate crisis, and that's not gonna change moving forward. But you're not limited to voting for someone who's all for show and doesn't really get things done. You can vote for New Democrats. We are here for you, and for any of the things that you want, New Democrats will fight for you. We will fight to, to make sure that the environment is protected. We will fight for you to make sure you've got housing that you can afford. We will fight to make sure health care is better. If that's what you get with New Democrats. We will fight for you. Mr. Trudeau has been all for show. We are fighters and we got your back. 2021 general election. Um, flashbacks for me as someone that was a leader during that election, but welcome to another episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham, and I'm very pleased to be joined by a colleague from the other side of the house, but someone I've considered a friend, someone I respect a great deal, and someone that I'm really looking forward to a lively, fun, and informed discussion, which is the whole point of... Of the blue skies podcast welcome nathaniel erskine smith yeah thanks for having me you are in the beaches in beaches east york you're riding today i'm here in ottawa and i apologize to our listeners confederation building is under repair so if you hear some hammering and stonework in the background uh, that's where i am in my hill office so we're trying to filter that out but nate is a great member of parliament was elected in 2015 2019 and 2021. A lawyer, a Queens grad for both undergrad and law school, mate, I call Queens Kingston's second best university, as <laughs> RMC uh, <laughs> grad. Uh, married two uh adorable sons. I've met one of them, uh, the one I think that was born in 2019. You had him in as uh, as an infant. Um <laughs> And I know uh, time with your kids very important. You host your own podcast, uh, Uncommons, which is a great discussion. Uh, I will appear on your podcast at some point. And would that make me the third conservative?
1: It will make you the fourth conservative. I've had Michael Chong, Eric Duncan, Michelle Rempel most recently, and all reasonable conservatives. So you will, I think, be in that tradition as well.
0: Well, thank you. So uh, lawyer, Queens grad, an Oxford grad for a master's degree. And you practiced civil litigation for a time and did some pro bono work with the Canadian Civil Liberties uh, Association. Very active, a family from Beaches, East York. So my most controversial question right off the top, Nate, (laughs) to you, is it the beach
1: or the beaches? Ah, Yes, the, the age old question. It is, to me, The Beaches, because there are multiple beaches. I grew up, my generation called it The Beaches, and it's Beaches East York in the riding name. But there was a referendum, a little local referendum, not so... It was a while ago now, actually, but uh, The Beach won. And so people do refer to the BIA, The Beach Village, and The Beach is sort of the more formal name given to it by, by some, but... It's, it's always the beaches to me. I I lived in the beaches, and I call it the beaches. So, you know, you're
0: just going to lose some votes south of Queen as a result of your answer, uh, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, There's
1: I was, no good answer there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Rebecca and I loved the neighborhood because it reminded her of Nova Scotia, you know, on, on the lake. Uh, Every family, it was almost you were issued a dog when you moved into the beaches. Uh, We had Molly, our first daughter there. We lived in Glenfern, south of Queen when we first rented. And then we lived on Dixon in the Beach Triangle. And I, we were there when the vote took place for for the naming of the signs, uh, the street signs. And I said, the iconic library which was, uh, you know, one of the the famous libraries built um, a century ago is named the Beaches Branch. So I kind of said that is when
1: the decision was made. <laughs> That's right. To call it. it interesting the you say Nova Scotia, by the way, because I was just reading George Eliot Clark is a former poet laureate, parliamentary poet laureate, and. He has written a book recently. I was reading some of the coverage of him in the in the beach metro. So the beach metro, not the beaches metro, but I was reading some of the coverage of it. And, and he actually described he was he's from Nova Scotia and he was he has a very similar description that he loved being in the beaches because of the very the similarities.
0: Absolutely. It ha- it has that vibe, and it very much is like a a a summer town in some ways, because the 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 main street queen is like just bursting in the summer yeah. and I always felt bad for the restaurants and coffee shops in the winter when it kind of died down but the multiple beaches uh you know woodbine queue and all all of them uh is is plural so we're going to agree right off the top look at this look at this <laughs> so
1: <Local> agreeable <laughs>
0: conservatives agreeing on the beaches um but my clip off the top is really what uh, is the first topic we're going to talk about the Liberal NDP deal, the coalition, as I might call it, the supply <laughs> and confidence agreement, as as you might call it. Um, you've been a booster of the deal, but let me ask you: when you heard that clip, Jagmeet saying fighting for Canadians, unlike Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau asking progressive voters not to vote NDP, that was September twentieth. A few weeks later, they're talking a deal.
1: Is that undemocratic when they didn't run on the deal, Nate? Not in any way whatsoever, because this is, A, not a coalition. So it is not a situation where you have members of the NDP that are formerly part of the government that hold ministerial positions and, and that occupy, uh, there's a, there, there isn't a collaboration within government itself. You have a situation where it remains the liberal government and the NDP is a supportive partner in parliament. And so when we look at the Supply and Confidence or, uh, Agreement, I look at it and I say, what does the NDP get out of it? They get a they get dental care out of it. And that was not something we promised Canadians in the September election. But everything else in that deal, these are core priorities that we promise Canadians around climate action, strengthening the healthcare system, around reconciliation, around protecting workers and and affordable childcare and housing. And all of these issues are now prioritized, shared priorities, but prioritized in the course of this agreement. And this agreement will ensure that we are better able to deliver on those commitments. And do we want a parliament that works or not? Do we want a parliament and a government that deliver on the things that they said they would or not? And this agreement, whatever one thinks about it, we can get into the scrutiny of, is this government going to be more fiscally sustainable in light of the agreement with free spending, NDP and, and all that, we can get into that. And I think there are credible questions and there should be scrutiny around budgets but as it relates to the ability of this government to deliver on the agenda that liberals promised Canadians in the last election this deal is only good news for that delivery now uh,
0: of course as someone that ran against the coalition raised the coalition in the fall and was called crazy you know Jagmeet Singh I said (laughs) I'm making things up and uh lo and behold here it is too late for me of course but um You said better able to deliver. Now, I'm going to call you on that because some of the promises, including Pharmacare, are are things you'd promised previously, including some of them when you had a majority and didn't need the votes from the NDP. Um, Is this really just to give a period of calm and less scrutiny for the government? Um, Or do you really think that this will be the, the partner in the supply agreement? holding your feet to the fire better? Because a lot of these, and this is what Jagmeet's clip at the end of the election said, and I was saying, Mr. Trudeau promises a lot of great things, but the deliverology that was promised back in 2015 never came about. So is this going to make you more accountable to the promises that have been made?
1: I hope so, actually, that there's greater accountability around the promises we've made. And I would say two things around the delivery. So on the one hand, I would say we I would go back to my constituents in beaches east york and i would hear that line i think that line actually landed more than i would have liked it to where and whether it was your attack drug attack maybe a combination of the two that this idea that we promise things and our our actions don't meet our words i think that landed in, in in some ways at least and so my response was to say nonsense the canada child benefit was delivered the canada pension plan expansion and enhancement was delivered Climate action, by the way, projected 2030 emissions were 815 megatons when we took office. They're now 468 megatons as of the last budget. That's a very short period of time to make a, a significant difference on that front. And those policies take years to, to, to deliver. When you look at childcare, we are now underway with with, with child care agreements and, and on and on and on. You know, there, there are pieces that I could point to, but, but having said that, there in in many cases, there was this idea that well, you've partially delivered. So you've got seventy percent of long-term boil water advisories have been lifted. Well, why not one hundred percent? And you're not yet where you need to be on climate action. And you your child care agreements, yeah, you you talk a good game, but but where is the where is the benefit to me in Ontario today? I don't see the benefit. And so when I look at that complaint and I look at the promises that were partially delivered but not fully delivered a 3 year trajectory and this is where i actually think the politics plays in our favor in a significant way but also the scrutiny is is enhanced we are going to have 3 years to deliver now on the things to finish delivering in many ways on the things that we promised canadians and canadians are going to look a number of years from now and say did you or did you not and yes there's going to be enhanced scrutiny but i think to our benefit we're going to have a, a runway and I, I think more parliamentary cooperation to actually do the things we, we said we were going to do in the first place.
0: Well, uh, going back to whether it was me or Jagmeet, I seem to remember in the debate, someone saying Mr. Trudeau's ambition is never matched by his achievement. I can't remember which one of us said that. It's um, <laughs> a good line. It's a good yeah, line. Yeah, thank you. Um, but Canadians did not elect a supply and confidence agreement. And as the last parliament
1: showed, How would they ever elect that though, Aaron, you know, it's impossible everyone wants to win and everyone puts their best foot forward to win and then once you see how the election shakes out you do your best to deliver for canadians and and you play your cards as as you're dealt them and so we saw a minority session at the tail end of the last part, I actually think there was great cooperation. You were part of that cooperation early on in the course of the pandemic. But I don't know if you have a view of this, but when we got back to our regular agenda or a re- you know, an outside of pandemic agenda, my view was that things became incredibly dysfunctional in a way that I've not seen. And I haven't been doing it that long, but in the six years I've been doing it. And so if we saw more of that in this session, we would not get as many things done. And so that, when I looked at it, is this a way for us to move more quickly on the things we promised Canadians? And and they, Canadians voted for, in fact, if you think about it, more Canadians would have voted for an arrangement like this when you take a step back and think about people who voted for the liberals and the NDP in in combination versus a majority liberal government and we would where we would control all the power and there'd be less scrutiny.
0: Yeah, but in fairness, there was a lot accomplished before in that minority parliament, you know. And some of the initiatives that we brought forward, you voted for in terms of uh, a plan to counter foreign interference in elections from China, and we'll get into maybe a bit of that later. Uh, yeah, um, you know, even the Emergencies Act debate. It's a sore uh,
1: for me. Yeah, right?
0: yeah, I know. You you gave a, a you know very intelligent speech from your civil liberties background, saying I have problems here, but I voted as as part of a confidence agreement, but you know, a minority parliament is meant to sort of not be clean and not messy, but on a case by case basis that allows everything to be scrutinized to a degree that we are getting the best product and Canadians sent, you know, 25 or so NDP, they sent more more seats from the Liberals, they sent, you know, a large 119 Conservatives. Shouldn't that be the result that the government has to have that degree of deal-making and scrutiny on every matter and not have guaranteed uh
1: you know no challenges for three years well i wouldn't say no challenges either right so there are always going to be those moments I actually think the emergency act is a really interesting example because i was faced as a liberal with a question of do i vote for the invocation actually the continuation of uh, functionally we were voting for the continuation of the act as of date that the the vote was taking place and that's where i really struggled with because i didn't think what everyone thought of whether it needed to be invoked in the first place it was a real struggle to think they the measures were necessary in a continued manner but i was faced as a liberal with this question of do i support this initiative and if i don't support this initiative does it amount to non-confidence and so i promised canadians in 2015 i promised my constituents that even where I disagreed, and I would disagree at times I, I would be more independent. I did promise Canadians that and constituents that, but I also promised that I would abide by confidence agreement or confidence votes. And I would vote, just keep the government in, 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 its position. And so I was, I had to struggle with that question to say, well, I promised, I don't agree with this particular issue, but I, 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 promised Canadians that I would support confidence votes. And so I think the NDP is going to be in a position where they've now said we on the basis of these key priorities, these shared priorities, we are going to continue to support this liberal government. Not to say there won't be scrutiny. I think Charlie Angus is still going to go to town on us at committee where he sees fit, and where there are opportunities. I don't think it's going to this idea that you're going to have Matthew Green or Leah Gazan and Charlie Angus not hold this to account. I think is a, is a bit silly, but I I do think there's there's going to be an emphasis on cooperation. And when I think of you know rubber hitting the road on a, on a matter where. If the government were to make a, a, an issue confidence that the NDP were really opposed to, then maybe the, the deal falls apart, right? Um, but it's not going to preclude us pursuing increased military spending, as an example, despite NDP objections. I think there are areas where the NDP is going to come to the same conclusion I did on the Emergencies act. They're going to say, "I don't agree with what the Liberals are doing, but it doesn't amount to non-confidence, and these other issues we care about uh, are need to be delivered on." But any money bill, they're never going to be defeated on,
0: right? So it, it does give a degree of how many Canadians watch Charlie Angus rant on in committee? Not many, as you know. The the bubble effect of Ottawa, and if there's no threat of of losing a money vote, um, you know I think there's grumbling in in your caucus and in the NDP caucus. I've spoken to to someone. I spoke to an NDP MP yesterday who did actually say they were kind of informed of the discussions that started in the fall, and I I called out the discussions and it kind of stopped. Then Omicron made it stop. Then Convoy, and then it kind of came back. I heard your interview with John Moore in the morning uh, that you tweeted out. You weren't informed until the deal was done and the caucus was informed. How did MPs feel about that? That the PMO ran this without
1: well, I knew telling members? Were, I, I knew there were active conversations underway. Uh, back to back to the fall. Uh, you know, I've been in touch with folks at the PMO to encourage those conversations. Actually, so I am a member who, far from being concerned about it, I actually am great. I'm, I'm seriously optimistic about the idea of cooperation. And I can point to examples throughout our history. I would hold up a very, I think, challenged politician at times, but Lester B. Pearson did a hell of a lot of things for this country in a minority session over five years by cooperating with the CCF and, and Canada Pension Plan and Medicare have stood the test of time. So I do think there are opportunities there. So I'm less concerned about was I in the know exactly at the very end when they when the whole deal was finalized. No, did I know that it, active conversations were underway? I'd express my support for them. I'd given my view on it. That's all I can reasonably expect. I think in the position that I occupy. And now when I look at it going forward, I think the the main considerations that I'm looking at are are we able to better deliver? Are, are we able to deliver on the agenda that we've set? What is the timeline of that agenda, and how do we make sure, and this is a challenge actually that pre-existed the supply agreement, because it's a challenge with this question of how much we promise as liberals, how do we do everything we said we were going to do in a fiscally sustainable way? And and I think there will be greater scrutiny around that kind of conversation because of the supply arrangement, because of this the traditional view of the NDP. All right, good
0: discussion. Had to end this section on the Liberal-NDP <laughs> deal. One simple question. The deal goes to 2025, which would have this parliament go its full term. Simple question to end this part. Is Justin Trudeau Liberal leader in 2025?
1: It will be ultimately up to him to decide whether he wants to continue, I think, given the success he's had to date. I do think there is... A natural evolution of leadership after such a significant number of years. And by that time it would have been, I think, close to 10 years. And so I think we'll have to have a, a really serious conversation about what's in the best interest of the party going forward from there.
0: Perfect political I'm such answer. A I'm sucking. Perfect a political answer, Nate. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: supplement. Well, that's about minor. my pay grade a little bit, you know? So you hinted <laughs> you hinted that he won't be the leader when this ends. Will you run for leader? No. As a progressive liberal.
1: No, no.
0: Will you run for leader provincially at some point? We have uh,
1: <laughs> we have okay. a leader provincially and there's an election coming up in June, and people should give Stephen Del Duca a serious look. I I would say fairly and, and honestly, I, I can't imagine Chris, I, I don't know how you did it. Crisscrossing the country with a young family, I think it is exhausting. I think it wears on one. I look at provincial politics and I have the benefit of being from Toronto, living in Toronto, my family's in Toronto, my wife works in Toronto, it would be much easier to balance being leader of a provincial party. I spoke to Bob Ray about this a long time ago and he basically said it was much easier being the leader and then premier in Ontario than it was to be a single member of parliament in Ottawa, given the the travel that's required of the latter role. So. I, you know I, I i hope del duca is successful frankly and I, I think that kind of change is necessary in our province but down the road would i be interested in that role over a national role i, I think so yeah well i uh, uh would you vote for I, me I,
0: I, <laughs> I don't hope mr del duca is successful uh, i was i was digging around looking for some good clickbait from the blue skies political podcast <laughs> nate, nate erskine smith hints at leadership run my prediction You will be in a provincial leadership, uh, perhaps up against Bonnie Crombie. That would be my uh, my guess at this point. But let's move on um, because you've been fun to watch. You know, when you were a brand new MP, you came on public safety with me. And that's when we No,
1: I I remember that was I I tell people that I have a good relationship with you and they scratch their head. I say, yeah, we work really well together. I thought so.
0: That's when you first got the moniker the least predictable MP. I remember one time you voted with something I brought forward at committee, which was reasonable. But I remember uh, the woman from your whip's office, I can't remember, she's a great longtime staffer, (laughs) running into the meeting after you were voting with us. And for a few weeks, she just happened to attend (laughs) our public safety committee meeting. Uh, I heard you talk to Andy Leslie about sitting on his couch a lot. Um, Have you been able to come to, you know, a decent working relationship with your whips, them knowing that you you'll be there for confidence, but you're going to speak your mind uh, and be that least predictable MP. Has it, has it held you back? Or has it been something that is now your brand?
1: I think it has, in some respects, probably held me back. I don't think I will ever be a parliamentary secretary or be considered for such a role. I am not a committee chair. So there are those titles to the extent one cares about them that that I will not have. And that's fine by me. I think it has, in other respects, probably done the opposite. It's given me greater standing if I am able to be publicly critical and I'm doing so on the on the ideas. I'm I'm not a disagreeable liberal as it relates to the Prime Minister or the finance minister. I, I I never make it personal. And I think if I I don't think the party wants me to go out there and be publicly critical and and they are gonna respond to my concerns in a serious way. So I think to you know, over time I've carved out a space for myself. The Whips office knows that they can't really give me much of a hard time. I mean, what have I got to lose anyway? And what's the worst thing that happens? I, you know, I go make more money and see my family more. Ah, oh, shucks, you know? Um, but I, uh, um, yeah, so I, I I love the job. And I I think I carry myself in a way that the job is supposed to be, uh, in, in a way that I think at least in my view, I, there's no job description, but I think we need greater independence. I think the party systems are too strict at times. And so I think it's a good thing that people are publicly seen to be, reasonably disagreeing. And there's that divergence of view sometimes within caucuses. And so, yeah, I think also over time, they've seen me go to bat for the party and to and yeah. use my standing in that way, too. So I'm not always critical. I'm, I'm also supportive on, on any number of issues. And so over time, I think they've gone from who the hell is this kid? What the hell does he think he's doing (laughs) to actually maybe there's a benefit here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the whips office, I I like to
0: joke are outnumbered with, especially when you're in a majority or government position. So the whip and their team has to pay zone defense, but for a while they had man to man with you (laughs) 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 watching. Exactly. (laughs) But I think they've come to that and you've developed respect on all sides. You know, I'm, that will be the extent of my uh, promotion of my friend, Nate, but, no, but, you, but you're known as a I, well-informed, thoughtful MP. And I, I do think I have, you know, I took issues. I was in the minority of my party early on in LGBTQ rights on on decriminalization of marijuana. I, I didn't agree with our approach in the 2015 election. Um, and look, I went on to lead the party, not, not as long as I would have liked to, but um, I think you can still have success if you're known to know your files, and to be transparent on where you disagree.
1: I think that's right. Come prepared, earn respect, and I would say earn respect within your caucus, and that can be its own challenge, because sometimes you are perceived when you do step out, especially early on, especially around electoral reform. I wrote an op-ed to say we shouldn't have broken that promise, and it was the wrong thing to do, and I apologize to Canadians for, for our broken promise. That definitely rubs some of my colleagues the wrong way. Uh, surprise, surprise, but... I would say also earn respect outside your caucus and you and I aren't going to agree on everything, but I know you're in it for the right reasons. And I actually thought you were a really important leader at a particular time to move your party towards say on climate is a really good example to move the party towards where the country is and where the conservative party needs to be. And so I try to also build bridges across the aisle. And I think those relationships can also be really effective at getting things done and when you think of the individual role that you've got as a backbencher in my case how can I be most effective and it's building as many bridges as you can
0: no and and you've built a reputation on a few areas and this is going to be my segue to the second part of our podcast you know you've had um, thought leadership in a range of areas you were well known for some of your anti-animal welfare uh, work but particularly with respect to social media and regulation of it the the power of the U.S. web giants. You were part of the multilateral uh, Western parliaments. Look at at social media companies. Um, I I've been talking about this for many years. In that social media has changed politics to the point that too often politicians or parties are only preaching to the people in their own preference bubbles, the the filters that go in, we're increasingly uh, becoming more divided because we're not listening to the other side of arguments. Um, Any thoughts on what we need to do uh, now that we know this is a problem? Like you and I were talking before this started, Facebook's super user problem. um, This is something that Francis Hagan and others have disclosed that To prevent the decline of of use on Facebook, their meaningful social interaction, their MSI scores, furthered groups and promoted super users to the point that 1% of Facebook accounts can attract 35 to 45% of all interactions. So it almost encourages, on left and right, extremes, and it promotes that. Any thoughts right off the top on,
1: on that and how you've seen it in your political career? Yeah, so first I would say even in the offline world, I think we as elected officials and candidates need to do a much better job at knocking every door and speaking to as many people as we can. And I think there's a tendency to just focus on IDing Canadians and getting them out to vote. And I think in the long term, not engaging in persuasion, not engaging in building that common ground is actually more destructive than, than helpful. So there's a I think an obligation for all of us, even outside the social media realm, but social media companies obviously exacerbate all of these challenges and make things much worse. And we can look to extreme examples where Facebook has acknowledged culpability in relation to the hate speech on its platform in Myanmar and and exacerbating and and elevating the genocide in, in Myanmar against the Rohingya. So there are really... Extreme examples like that, but there are also examples, as you pointed out, of super sp- spreaders as a ra- as it relates to misinformation and and problematic information, especially in the course of this pandemic. And imagine you struggled with some of that in your own caucus as someone who was trying to say vaccines are the most important, and your caucus you you've got a really it's a big tent party. So uh, there's a lot of things we can do, I think. And and I would say, though, it is fraught because of free speech and free speech is something that you and I both would take incredibly seriously. And we ought to defend and, and we and we can't, uh, we can't sacrifice free speech for the sake of trying to address misinformation or disinformation. So we we do need to hold that in very high regard. And I would say as a starting point, there are some really basic things. So like the idea of a social media standards council, it's an idea that Expert researchers floated many years ago to us, and it makes eminent sense. We we have a, had a broadcasting standards council for many years, and as algorithms replace editors, just having that kind of internal consideration of ethics, as opposed to even rules, but internal consideration of ethics, I think, matters a great deal. It's starting to happen. Twitter has some changes to their platform to try and address some of these challenges. We've seen YouTube in the course of the pandemic that prohibited information that was spreading misinformation in a a more serious way. So there are in fits and starts attempts there. The core piece of it, though, I think is around transparency and accountability. And the best example, you mentioned the Facebook whistleblower. And I heard from Francis, as part of this International Grand Committee and this multilateral sort of working group in Brussels back in November, and her and Maria Ressa both were sort of our key core witnesses and, and higher profile witnesses. But we looked at the EU's Digital Services Act and what it does and and the core idea is the comp- lar- very large platforms that take in all this information and then sp- have a significant role in bro- effectively broadcasting, promoting via algorithms, this information. A risk assessment in relation to the promotion of illegal content, but more critically, I think, as we look to it, the intentional manipulation of these platforms including by automation so you have a risk assessment that the companies would perform you'd have an obligation a legal obligation on the companies to take remedial action to reduce those risks and then you'd have an independent audit function as it relates to access by independent researchers and are the companies identifying the right challenges are the companies doing the right things they need to address these challenges and and, and then some probably reporting requirements uh, around that as well but uh, for me, that kind of transparency first and then some accountability to take remedial action. It's consistent with Treasury Board has a directive around this as well about identifying risk and then responding to those those risks. It seems to be the way smart people who think in this space are encouraging us to head where other countries are heading. And I think it avoids in large measure the, the free speech challenges that we've seen where you try to really address specific content uh, um, uh, directly. And, and I think that that in some ways has, has, has been why the online harms consultation has been more fraught than it, than it needed to be, I think.
0: Yeah, I think this is one area I think both of us agree that there needs to be protection for free speech. And I don't think, you know, your average person who may use a social media platform of any type wants to think that the CRTC is going to be uh, uh, approving or regulating or, or interfering with their free speech abilities. So how can we make sure that that is sacrosanct But have some transparency, as you said, on algorithms in particular, which is not transparent to people. People don't realize that they are only being uh, shown on their feed, super user content in in some cases, the MSI scores. There were 30 points given to sort of significant or hyperbolistic comments compared to one point for a like on a post. So when you're really supercharging the most uh, hardcore content, both on left and right, it is dialing up the temperature of all political discourse in order to really move eyeballs and sell advertising. So um, do you really think, almost from an antitrust model, should there be transparency with respect to the algorithm, and how can that be done while protecting intellectual property, or should this supersede intellectual property considerations?
1: I don't know that it should entirely supersede. I think you want to be cognizant of that concern and, and protect as much as you reasonably can the intellectual property and, and and that's all well and good. I think you can do both though, insofar as you two things. One, there are existing institutions. I'll use the UK as an example, really strong information commissioner there previously who was a Canadian, Elizabeth Denham. And when we had her as a witness at one of our committees. She effectively said she's scaling up her capacity to have that computer science expertise at, at early days for privacy commissioners and information commissioners to do that. But that work has begun, certainly in earnest elsewhere. And so there's that capacity building in institutions that needs to happen. She was very clear that her role is to enforce transparency. And then it would be the role for another commissioner, say, if there was a human rights violation, if an algorithm was as one example, say, charging Asian students more for the MCATs or LSATs and, and having differential pricing as a result of who the user is, that could very easily and quickly, and, and that example violates our, our human rights rules. So you could have an, a different commissioner once it's made transparent, actually enforce the rules. So there are considerations like that, but I, I would go further and say, you and I are lawyers, we would not understand how the algorithm works, but individual employees at Google, individual programmers would not understand how everything works. We would understand, though, inputs and outputs. So here are the data inputs, and okay, this is what the this is what's being spit out. What are the risks associated with what's being spit out? There might be positives to our bottom line, but are there societal challenges? Are there negatives that we, there are red flags here that we should be concerned about and we, and we might want to mitigate, might want to address. And you and I, I think, would very quickly, we wouldn't understand the, the, technical aspects of it but we would understand the how the inputs translate to outputs and the societal risks at play and you know the engineers and lawyers and others who sit on the board of google and the executives that sit at google or sit at facebook they would be receiving these algorithmic impact assessments we i asked actually at at one of our grant committee meetings i asked all three twitter facebook and google do you conduct independent or do you conduct algorithmic impact assessments on a news feed and the recommendation function and the algorithms that you employ and they all said yes and i said okay well can you provide them to our committee no <laughs> so I, I think that level of transparency at least of auditing are you identifying material risks are you failing to disclose material risks are you addressing those material risks i, I think that's all kind of fairly consistent with, with other areas as well in terms of risk reporting and and material risk disclosure yeah. no and speaking
0: of disclosure, when I was a lawyer, my final years of private practice before becoming an MP, our firm represented Facebook. Um, I didn't work on any of the stuff related to this but as a competition and advertising lawyer and, and, and someone that was we were part of this burgeoning social media space it was it was it was new it was like 2010, 2011 um, Now we're starting to see the impact. I've often said this in caucus, as an MP, I noticed that if I did a post celebrating a young student in my community, um, I might get 20 likes and 10 shares all from their family members. If I lit off uh, and owned the lives, uh, I could get a thousand likes. And so over time, politicians on left and right, I, yeah. I've said, are chasing likes yeah. because you want to think, oh, my engagement is going up. It's only going up if you're dialing up the heat and it's hard not to chase that. And so um, I think a better understanding of how the algorithm leads to that environment is something I think all Canadians need to know a little bit about. Let me say one thing you talked about, intentional manipulation, foreign interference. You voted with a motion we had on uh, looking at some measures like Australia took to limit interference by the communist regime in Beijing, Chinese interference in uh, in social media and politics and in, in debates. Is this another area that I think we have to get into? Because I think most Canadians now know what a troll is, what, uh, you know, uh, you know, troll farms and, and foreign interference. Is this something that Canada is way behind the race in?
1: I'm not sure way beyond. I don't know that there's a perfect example that I would point to from another country that has gotten it exactly right, except most recently in the Digital Services Act isn't a set of rules that's enforceable just yet, but it will be, I think, sooner than later. And so that's probably the best example that I would point to where they've clearly identified intentional manipulation, including via automation. And it's applied only to very large platforms. But again, the idea being in the same way that you would target super spreaders to really narrow your, your focus, you'd target large platforms to narrow your focus there as well. So is it a problem that we need to address? Unquestionably so. And and I think the, the government did have Elections Act changes it with a view to better address this in the course of elections. And I think we, in the course of, if I'm recalling correctly, in the course of our Having Csis and others testify to our committee on this front, they are quite seized with this question of foreign interference and and analyzing what's happening in, our, in the context of our elections and addressing it. Is there more that we could do? I, I think unquestionably yes. And one is the challenge of not only the engagement, you know, the engagement rules of the platforms itself to encourage that divisive sort of rhetoric that you've identified but also and related that how bots and control farms hijack the algorithm to amplify content in really manipulated ways right So that's got to stop and that's clearly got to stop in our you know more people are talking about what happened at the Oscars because it was divisive and, 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 and that happens. that's just the nature of our society in some ways. people talk about things that are more aggressive and, and there's going to be more engagement when there's that divisiveness. But we shouldn't also layer on to society this fake amplification and this manipulated amplification via bots and troll farms. And that's that's got to stop for sure.
0: So we need more long-form reasonable discussion like on the Uncommons podcast hosted by you and the Blue Skies political podcast hosted by me. Um, the last section was something we talked about overlapping areas where we both have some concern uh, you wanted to bring up the last topic, uh, yeah. which was the kind of the centerpiece of of our political platform, secure the future, um, and something that I don't think is well understood: the Canada's worker benefit. What
1: did you want to discuss, uh, and from what point of view? Okay, so when I thought about areas of common ground, you and I worked together on the National Security Committee, and we've we give each other a hard time. I, we've debated one another at the Churchill Society event, where I think there were almost as many people on stage as there were in the audience, but... And you know, I won that debate, if I recall. <laughs> I, I think. I can, we, can, we can safely say that Andrew Cash lost the debate. and yeah, I, we We, we <laughs> might have come to a draw. But, you know, I, I do think you and I would share a considerable number of, of views. And I'm glad, I think it's unfortunate what happened to you in many respects, because I mentioned climate. I meant, you, know, you you've mentioned on equality issues around LGBT Canadians, but I would also say around poverty reduction. When I looked at the Canada Workers' Benefit, there you have a policy. I think I've said this in the House before, but you have a policy that Ralph Goodale, a more centrist liberal, a a center-right liberal at times, I would say, you have Ralph Goodale as finance minister that initially comes up with the idea on paper. You've got Jim Flaherty that actually delivers. It's a conservative government that makes it happen, called Whitby at the time, and uh, nod to Flaherty's riding, and then you have Charlie Angus to use his name again, but you've got Charlie in his leadership run where he talks about enhancing it and, and 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 making it larger and then you and your platform you've got it as your signature piece to really enhance it and in a caucus resolution that I'd put together many years ago, I was calling for us to make it automatic, which we thankfully subsequently did, and also calling for it to be expanded upon enhanced and and we have by the way, we've moved it from the seven hundred million dollars that it was when we first took office to three billion dollars a year. But in when you think about it, we spend almost sixty billion dollars a year on OAS and GIS. And my parents receive OAS, they're retired teachers with a, you know, the the home they own didn't cost them particularly a large sum of money i wish
0: i wish we still owned our home in the beaches for the <laughs> Yeah.
1: you know and so you've got a generation of canadians that aren't receiving benefits they're working canadians that can't afford homes that are struggling to get by and then there are benefits that we're spending you know uh not fine you know not these are not funded by the the the, the recipients these are out of general revenue benefits and so you've got oas gis a massive sum you've got the canada Child benefit a wonderful policy i think uh, and that's $25 to $30 billion a year. And then you got $3 billion a year for the working poor. And I think that is it's a clear missing middle. It is a clear priority for any government that should care about poverty reduction. I don't think you guys defended the policy sufficiently in the course of the election because I actually think it, it is a, a really wonderful policy. And instead you guys got attacked for gutting childcare and and not amplifying the positives of, of Canada workers' benefit is what it is. That's behind us. But I would say there's an area where. There's great common ground to support a program that reduces poverty for the working poor and that has had support traditionally across the aisle. So there's my we don't have any money to spend at the moment, but there's my pitch. (laughs) So let me get this straight.
0: Least predictable liberal MP. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith endorses Aaron O'Toole's election platform six months after the election. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Nate. No, I, you know, but I don't I'm, know. I'm, you know, uh, the the platform was uh, it was shape shifting
1: every day. Aaron, so <laughs> I, I don't. know.
0: <laughs> Listen, I I don't think we were able to talk about it enough because uh, I'll, I'll I'll use some of your discussion of the the child benefit and the income tested part that that Trudeau always made. Big Hay, I remember him in the house before you were there saying to Stephen Harper, you're sending out checks to millionaires like you and me. And and that always drove Harper crazy because, you know, he did not come from the similar background as Justin Trudeau. Um, But the $10 day daycare, do some of the millionaires in the beach need $10 day daycare? Or should we put some of that fiscal capacity of the government to working families? I made the clear decision that the Canada workers' benefit was the vehicle for what I would call the working poor, people that are in the service industries that would be stood up after COVID, making in, you know, in, the, in, the, um, in the sort of twenty-five, dollars $30,000 range, um, we were doubling that benefit because inflation, which at that time wasn't as crazy as it is now, they weren't being able to afford rent. They weren't being able to afford rising grocery costs. Uh, I still think it would have been a better solution on top of targeted aid um, uh, income tested for, for childcare. Um, And it, what I liked about it, it is really incentivized working and recognize the inherent value, whether you're a highfalutin litigator lawyer like you or someone working in their first job, working a night shift there's dignity. There's purpose in that. Um, we also promised to double the disability supplement as well. So we actually tried to target uh, relief not to the wealthy, which often the conservatives are are pigeonholed as tax breaks for the wealthy. We were actually trying to help that working uh, working family struggling with
1: rising costs. A few things. One. I would draw a bit of a distinction as it relates to means-tested and universal benefits and programs, because benefits, I, I do think, should be means-tested in a serious way. And there's always that calculated conversation to say, how do we means-test it to ensure that it isn't vulnerable to being replaced down the road? And so the can and shall benefit is means tested yes but it's not nearly as means tested as gis for seniors and it's not nearly as means tested as the Canada workers benefit and it, as a result i think there's for the same reason we have old age security that has is that broader popular support among seniors and, and among canadians more less targeted means testing but still means testing nonetheless can be critical to ensure that a program has long-standing broad support as it relates to services especially childcare, though universality there's there's I don't think there's a strong economic case for universality on the literature. Everything I've read suggests that targeted childcare supports are where you'd get the economic return. And I I use myself as an example. My wife's doing her her PhD right now. And so if we were, if I was a lower income salary than I am, it it would be a struggle and we'd have to make some tough decisions and we may or may not, you know, I may or may not work or my wife may or may not be doing her studies or working. And so having that, financial support, there is a return to the economy because we get into the workforce or we continue our studies and finish our studies. But in my current s- circumstance, there's no economic return, I'm, I'm going to send my kid to childcare with the subsidy or not, right. And so I don't think there's a, an economic case for subsidizing me. There is a, there is a, a, an argument, though, and, and I would make the same argument about our, about our public school system. There is an argument for universality as it relates to these systems as a matter of social cohesion. And to ensure that I'm not sending my kid to private school necessarily. I'm sending my kid to the public school. We're all in this together. And and I want my kid to be in a school with people from all different backgrounds and, and income backgrounds and 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 cultural backgrounds and more. Right. And so I think there's a I, I'm a product of the public school system. My parents are public school teachers, so I, I have a bias. But I do think we should defend universality of certain programs like daycare potentially and certainly like schools on different grounds than than pure economic grounds
0: yeah but and that was the argument in the mustard report in ontario for junior kindergarten and things like that uh my worry is going back to the beach someone living south of queen on silver birch do they deserve or need ten dollar
1: a day daycare that it's all about how to and they may not right and they may not so the provinces will have a lot to say about design and my understanding at least is like there's gonna be a 25 percent reduction across the board in which case maybe your argument does stick there. So can we say
0: six months later, Nate also endorses O'Toole's childcare? Right? <laughs> uh, no.
1: I, I, so there, there, you and I would disagree significantly. Around, I'm just trying to get in trouble uh, around tax credits, though, right? I, I don't think tax credits on the childcare front are are useful enough. And, and I would still, be, I still benefit from the, the the tax credits, right? So I actually think the tax credit system, as it relates to childcare. I'm more aggressive, I would probably do away with it entirely, take that savings, and then have, have make sure that it's more fiscally sustainable in relation to our overall child care program. What, what I worry about is when we pit these things against one another, I, I actually don't think the fact we've done child care should dissuade us from pursuing the Canada Workers Benefit. And I actually think the Canada Workers Benefit has greater value than some of our other priorities that, we, that we've laid out in that in the course of that supply agreement. I, would, I, I just wish we focused on poverty reduction a little bit more and I wish when we think of basic income programs and even those who support basic incomes, they should think of these existing social programs like the Canada Workers' Benefit as something to really lean into and say, let's lift this up. Let's have the new disabilities benefit and let's really expand the Canada Workers' Benefit. And if we made those twin policies a priority, we'd end poverty in this country in a really significant way.
0: Well, the interesting thing, one of the learnings we should have from the pandemic is, with the direct payment of CERB and other things, what we were proposing in the election on Canada Workers' Benefit was a direct deposit quarterly for those yeah, families. Exactly. So, it was real, real, real help, not waiting for tax year. Exactly. Um, the one thing I would say is, when you mentioned Pearson early on, making progress on some of the universal programs, um, he used tax points, not direct transfers, right? So, this is my worry with, with what a lot we've seen from the liberal government is there's some cash for the next four years, but then the provinces have to run and manage all these things and the collective agreements and everything for the next 30 years. And we're going to see a situation like healthcare where the intention is 50, 50 funding. And then it falls to like 80, 20 or 75, 25. And, and I think there's a lot of treading into provincial jurisdiction. And I think that could be the title of the, of the, Confidence and supply agreement you signed with the NDP treading into provincial <laughs> jurisdiction. Uh, so, listen. Um, what
1: can I the, say? Just one thing. So, I. Actually, no, this is can't my can't, podcast. You can't say it. <laughs> no. Go ahead. Well, I think the challenge is I, I see the challenge to the supply agreement uh, through really one lens. I mean, people can talk about the politics. Is it good for the Liberal Party? Is it good for the NDP? Is it good? For, it's obviously not good for the conservatives. But when it comes to the actual challenge ahead of us, and you, I think, hit the nail on the head in relation to down the road is the federal government going to have promised things to provinces and then walk away from a 50 50 share revenue sharing and to that i I would say we really need to make sure that when we deliver new social programs that i support and in some ways around kind of workers benefit you would support and i think a targeted dental care benefit you guys could probably get behind as well because it is means tested and targeted when we look at these programs we damn well better make sure that they are fiscally sustainable and funded for the long term, So we don't get into this seesaw of this current generation benefits from this consumption and these programs, and then it's fiscally unsustainable. So a future generation ha- and their leaders have to claw these programs back and the pendulum swings back and forth and back and forth. We do need to make sure that there's long-term fiscal sustainability that underpins these programs if we want them to last. The, and this
0: is my big worry. I'm glad you raised this is, um, We have seen a decline in our productivity. We've seen, you know, half a trillion dollars worth of debt. A lot of it COVID related, understandable. But, um, you know, the original 2015 promise, you'd remember as a new candidate, we'll never run a deficit more than $10 billion. And uh, I really worry that we are putting on so much spending pharma care, dental care, child care. Oh, we're going to buy F-35s now. You know, we're going to do, we're going to increase defense spending. Even, even you are advocating that. I, I love that. And you're on more of the left side But it's But sustainable,
1: but, but I do support it, but it's sustainable again. And, and I would, and but I would, Where have, do so, we
0: pay for all this? Because if you actually look at our economy, um, we've got inflation, we've got, um, you know, a lack of confidence in the resource sector in large part, with legislation like Bill C-69 and 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 an approach that I don't think has been balanced on climate. It's been too much rhetoric about emission reductions, not enough about how we work with the large emitters to get there. How are we going to pay all these bills, Nate?
1: So a couple of things. One, we should think of climate action, in the and we probably don't talk about it enough in the context of jobs as much as it is about doing our part for the world of future generations, because the transition is going to happen with or without us. And we damn well better make sure there are going to be jobs in Canada and in yeah. and, and the EV sector and the battery manufacturing sector and more. And there's great opportunity here if we if we respond correctly. And, and I do worry a little bit, I, I think you were trying to pull your party in a way, but I do worry a little bit about the sort of head in the sand mentality. And we're just going to continue doing what we've always done that will leave us seriously behind and hamper our ability to compete in, in the future. And so we probably don't articulate that case strongly enough to say we're going to support workers directly, not particular kinds of work, but we're also going to make sure that there are the jobs of the future that are here and and they're here as quickly as possible. So I I, I think we do have to talk about it more in economic terms and and strong jobs and, and good jobs and and making sure that we're you know talking about it in the context of jobs and employment uh, as opposed to just sort of you you might attack me in Beaches East York for saying let's let's reduce emissions. It's the right thing to do, um, but. I would also say, and I'll be critical, different spending should be treated differently. And so there are some spending priorities that I strongly support us deficit financing, including climate action. If we wanted to, if we wanted to put a heat pump in every single home and retrofit the windows of homes and reduce emissions that way and help Canadians afford that, I would I would laud that deficit spending because the benefits accrue to future generations and their short-term expenditures. They're not every year expenditures. They're short-term expenditures that will have a return. When I look at the response we had to Andrew Shearer's tax cut, so we expanded the basic personal amount. I think that's a fine idea if you care about it. And it's about affordability if you care about a tax cut in that way. But it should never be deficit financed. That's current consumption that future generations are then financing in a really unsustainable way. Similarly, when we increase old age, old age security, I'm sure that has support across the aisle. Canadians from all political stripes care about supporting seniors, rightly so. But I don't want a deficit spend to increase OAS. I think that's fiscally unsustainable and, and irresponsible. If I'm if I'm being more pointed, so there are certain programs that I would disagree we should deficit finance, and there are others that we should deficit finance, or or I would at least be comfortable with it. And so it kind of depends upon the program and the return and and the. The longevity of, of the federal role in it and the other thing we could talk about is taxes i would support much greater taxation on extreme wealth and i've engaged with a number of experts around how we could do that via inheritance taxation via addressing the differential treatment of taxation uh around employment income versus investment income and how investors are treated much more prefer preferably uh or treated much better by the government than uh than employees at times and so I we should have a serious conversation about taxes in this country. Nope. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> well, listen, I, of taxes.
0: I, I want lower taxes for Canadians, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I did look at an inheritance tax for uh, ultra rich, because I like what I like about the Canada Workers Benefit. It was encouraging work and the value in contributing. I've worked with so many veterans who their biggest challenge leaving the military is that purpose, and purpose is obviously, you know, central to your mental health and wellness and. And that's why we have to value that. And um, so let's end there. You know, we agree kind of on the Canada Workers Benefit. You hinted that you sort of agree on wealth taxation. So well, I we can, can know,
1: conclude we, and say this has been productive.
0: <laughs> when, when, when I'm when I'm on your Uncommons podcast, tune in. And I will ask you about because that. it is good. You can ask me about what we looked at in terms of inheritance. It would only be for super rich, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mainly because I don't think anyone should be lazy and and not productive and just coast. Uh, off the the hard work and the sweat equity of no, it speaks to a conservative
1: value. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: And people, so right? you know, we you know, given the challenges we faced, uh, we came up with the platform we had. But um, lots of agreement here, uh, and what's more important is I just think having discussions like this in the age of social media, and we talked about this, where you're almost encouraged to only read. Uh, what you already agree with and to get more outrage generated against people that don't agree. I think we've had a good discussion on things we agree with, we don't. We started off with perfect symmetry on the beaches uh, (laughs) that will be held against you in the next election there, I'm sure by some. But look, um, I encourage people to check out your Uncommons podcast. Uh, A good member of parliament, a good discussion today. Nate, thank you for blue skying some of these issues with me on the Blue
1: Skies Political Podcast. Thanks, Aaron, and we should humanize our opponents and we aren't going to agree on everything but I very much value your contributions via public service so
0: well, and you represent a riding that both Rebecca and I love. Uh, we haven't been back to the beach triangle to see our old neighbors, George and Peggy, in a while, but we'll have to get down and maybe have brunch with you down in one of those uh, hoity-toity Queen Street to bruncheries, uh, <laughs> but it's a lovely part of of Toronto, and um, it's been a great discussion, and I look forward to appearing on your Uncommons in the coming weeks or months.
1: Sounds good. We'll walk the beach and smoke a joint.
0: <laughs> well, I, I may stick with the cigar. Thank you very much. But listen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Uh, great discussion. I've been joined today by Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the MP for Beaches East York, the least predictable MP. Once described a uh, Liberal MP, but an all-round good guy. You can't see, but he's wearing his Toronto Blue Jays hat. So there's another point of agreement that we have. Uh, they're going to have a good run uh, for for the World Series again. But listen, thank you for tuning in to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Send me a note. What would you like to hear us talk about? This podcast is meant to be a thoughtful and engaging discussion on issues facing Canada, issues facing the world, to try and make sure we have a little longer form discussion of issues that are important to our parliament, important to our country. So thank you for blue skying this with us today. I'm gonna end with an Air Force term, CAVU. Ceiling and visibility unlimited. Canada's future has unlimited possibilities. We just have to strive for it. So thanks for tuning in. Join you again in a couple of weeks.